0: Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. You know, as I came in here today, I thought to myself, I wonder how many people have actually prepared to be here today. How many of you have actually gone through the disciplines and the exercise of getting yourself ready to engage God and to be engaged by God in true worship? The frenzy of that first century crowd on the week before Jesus was strung up on the cross is noted in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. We read the same account, a few minor details here or there that are uh, added together, but fundamentally in all three Gospels, they say the same thing, that in order to fulfill specific prophecy, Jesus had his disciples unhook a donkey, bring it to him so that he could ride it into Jerusalem as a king would normally ride into a city. This was to fulfill specific prophecy. Today, I'm going to introduce you to something else, and that is the proper way in which to prepare for worship, because as excited as those crowds were, as thrilling as that event must have been, they're waving their palm branches, they're crying out certain words, they're very emotional as Middle Eastern people tend to be, and there was a host of people in front of the processional, another host of people in back of the processional, and people along the way as Jesus comes into town and there was an emotional frenzy. Someone pulled them aside and said, who is this riding on the donkey? To show you how they did not get it. The response that they gave to the people, why this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. Who do you say that he is? Who is this Jesus that rides on this donkey? You see, there is incredible suffering that I believe the church engages in because we have yet to understand how to prepare to meet this Jesus from Galilee. Is that all he is? Was he simply a mere prophet from Galilee? Why would they then cry Hosanna, which means save us? Why would they then wave the palm branches? Yet they still did not get it. Their worship was faulty. I wonder how many of us prepared today to come into the presence of God in a way in which we can truly engage him and be engaged by him. Focused worship is dangerous to Satan. Focused worship that truly zeroes in, every single one of you zeroed in on engaging God and being engaged by God, is dangerous business to the kingdom of hell. And yet it is something that the very essence of revivals are made of. This is where revivals come from. Revivals come from focused worship, Focused around the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, where our sins are exposed and the light of God's word shines inside of our spirits and we begin to see things about ourselves that are different, maybe even hidden, perhaps even blind spots. We're talking about legacy building and I've used Psalm 95, this is the second in that Psalm 95 sermon, but... One of the points that I've been trying to make all the way through this series is that we need to learn as a generation to specifically transfer certain principles to the next generation. Now, it's not just in my generation, the grandparents, so to speak, but it's in your generation as well, the parents and your children and your young people. These principles apply across the board. We call it legacy building establishing a spiritual legacy. What do you want to be remembered by? What do you hope your children will do better than you've done? What principles do you want to know they've owned and have become part and parcel to who they are? This principle goes something like this. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that worship must never be approached casually. Worship must never be approached casually. And that true worship is the non-negotiable essence of their spiritual development and their relationship to God. And so for them to learn that principle, we have to teach that principle. And in order for us to teach it, we must ourselves own it. Now, you know how I feel about uh, the recipe books that you find on Christian bookshelves. Uh, Seven Steps to Overcome a Bad Marriage, Uh, Five Steps to Overcome This, and Three Steps to Overcome Depression, and Four Steps to Get Skinny, and all those other things, all those other books that are out there. They're a dime a dozen, and they fill, they load the shelves of local bookstores. You know how I feel about that. The Christian life is much more serious than an instant recipe. There are no easy steps to approaching God the right way in worship. Worship is a serious piece of Christian business. So there are no easy steps per se. Well, then why, Pastor, did you refer to this sermon as seven steps to prepare properly for worship? Well, I don't believe these seven steps are exhaustive. I believe, in fact, they are the bare minimum of what is necessary to properly prepare to come here. It's not going to solve your worship problem. Your worship problem being that you don't know how to engage God and you're not open to God engaging you. So that when you leave here, you have forgotten most of what you learned, and there's no so what, no exclamation point at the end of your worship experience. We have got to come to the place where worship means something to us, and then we respond to what it means to us by making an impact and a difference in the circles of our influence. Otherwise, our worship is fruitless. And so I want to take a look at some of these steps, specific steps that I believe are non-negotiable. These are things that you must do fundamentally to become proactive in your worship experience. Now, I'm not going to get through all seven of these today. We're going to only cover two. But the two we're going to speak of are two important and critical ingredients to proper preparation for worship. Let me see if I can give them to you in an easy way. The first thing you need to do in order to prepare biblically to come into this place is you must seek to resolve all known conflicts with anyone to the degree that it depends upon you. Conflict is, and conflict management is critical to biblical worship. You see, when we have conflicts... When we have unresolved issues with someone, it infects the body. We're all affected by your unresolved issues. Now stop and think for a moment. If you're sitting here as a husband and a wife, you're sitting here as a couple, and you have brought into the mix of this worship service unresolved issues. You came here today bitter, angry, Maybe you even fought this morning and argued. Maybe you called each other names or your children observed. You know, it amazes me the more we get into some of the marriage issues that I've faced for so many years with so many different people, how much the children observe and how painful it is for these children to watch as you cannot resolve and do not resolve your issues in your home, So suppose you come here and you're here in a context of a worship service and you have an unresolved issue with the person sitting next to you, your husband or your wife. Men, the Bible says your prayer life is hindered because of that unresolved issue. There's my translation on this is don't even bother praying. Because God's not going to hear your prayer about your specific needs until you address the specific needs of your spouse. As we'll see later on, he tells us what we're supposed to do in worship when we have unresolved issues. Suppose, young person, that you're sitting here today and you have lied to your parents. You've stolen. You've cheated. You've committed acts of fornication. You've gossiped. And yet your parents are under the impression that you're the model Christian. You're the model saint. That nobody else is like you. That they're one of these parents that would, that would say when their kids are accused, no, not my kid. Not my child. Because their image of you is shaped by a counterfeit faith. You have an unresolved conflict. And you have affected and infected the rest of the body. Suppose someone over here has an unresolved issue with someone over here. Conflict where you see each other and you go in opposite directions. Or you have some conflict with the leadership of the church. Or maybe you're a leader and you have some conflict with some of the people in the church who are under you. On and on the list can go. Suppose you sit there and gossip and criticize and ridicule. And say this and say that. Suppose you do it in the context of a public setting. Maybe the restaurant this afternoon. Where you blast and criticize the church. You've infected us by handling your conflicts the wrong way. Now, not all conflicts can be resolved. That's why I said in making this statement that as much as it depends upon you, you need to resolve the conflicts. There are some conflicts that cannot be resolved because the other party is unwilling to resolve them. But let's just suppose for a moment you're 1% wrong. Just 1%. And the other person is 99% wrong, and that's usually what we think is the case, isn't it? We usually think the other person is 99% wrong, and we're 1% wrong. We've been talking about this at the staff level. We've been talking about how all of us have been engaged in the church and our dealings with people in conflict. And inevitably what we find is so-and-so comes in and says A, and then so-and-so comes in and says B about the same person that came in and said A, and the A and B are two diametrically opposite stories. What we have found is that there's usually some truth to what both of them are saying. Some truth to what both of them are saying. So I am addressing that part where you may be wrong. Where it's possible you are not right. At least 5% or 1% right. To properly come before God and worship, it's your responsibility to go and get that 1% resolved. But you must do so with a proper attitude. You must do so with a proper mind, a proper mindset. The first thing I would suggest that you do before you come to worship is call that person and seek forgiveness for any part of the conflict that is your fault. And do so especially if that person's a Christian. I say especially because we are to especially guard the unity of the body. Imagine, just for a moment, the spirit of humility. That characterizes Matthew 5 and Hebrews 12 and Romans 14. Meditate on these passages. Meditate on the themes of these passages. Look at Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Hold it. Hold it. Are you saying to me, is Jesus teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount that unresolved conflicts means you're not a Christian? Because that's the only one who is consigned to the fires of hell. Yet he says there in that passage You are in danger of the fire of hell because you refuse to resolve conflict. You refuse to resolve the issues. Now, let me tell you why he said that. The reason we do not resolve conflicts is because of a proud heart. Pride is at the heart of why we do not approach our brothers and sisters in humility and seek forgiveness. Pride is what stands in the way. Proverbs 6 speaks of seven deadly sins and at the top of the list, these six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to him. Number one, a proud look. You see, pride is at the heart of lost people. To become a Christian you must yield the spirit of pride. To become a child of God and confess that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that you need Christ into your life is an act of humility. Remember what is said in the scriptures? God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know what that passage literally says? God resists. You know what that word resist means? To treat... As an enemy. Now, by the way, you can be a Christian and be proud. You say, wait a minute, are you saying that God could treat me as an enemy in my pride? Absolutely. In your pride, in my pride, that refusal to bring unity to my circumstances and unity to the body of Christ, God will indeed guard the unity of his church By treating the proud man as an enemy. And if that spirit of pride is so prevalent in your life that it affects every other aspect of your life, then you need to bring into question whether or not you are in danger of hellfire. You may not know the same Lord that the Bible speaks of. Verse 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Now what's he implying by saying that? It'll be there when you get back. He's expecting you to do something in the meantime. Place the gift there. He's ready to receive your worship. But not yet. Something has to happen before God can be worshipped in the right way. Leave the gift there. Leave it here at the altar. Verse 24, leave your gift there. First, go. Notice the word first. That means there's a second. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then second, come and offer your gift. So leave it here. God's waiting for you to worship him the right way. Go and get your conflict resolved to the best of your ability. Within whatever means God gives you in the spirit of humility, taking responsibility for your part and more than your part, humble yourself and show that person, demonstrate to that person what the character of Christ really looks like. Now, notice what happens here. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly. And then he goes on and he says this, with your adversary who is taking you to court, do this while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand it over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, then you'll be thrown into prison. He goes on and he talks about a progression, a downward spiral of conflict. He says, settle it quickly, or the downward spiral is going to start. And when the downward spiral starts, other people are going to get involved. Somebody comes to me, you've heard me say this many times, I have a bone to pick with you. And I love how they pick my bones. Number one argument when they're losing a reasonable argument. In other words, you come with an issue and you're, you pr- pr- you're proven wrong. Or, you know, you certainly don't expect the pastor or any other church leader to just have you come to them and say, well, I think you're wrong in X, Y, or Z. And then they sit, just sit there and say, okay, that's fine. I hope you would at least want to know what they think. And when you can't win that so-called argument on the basis of the facts, usually what happens at that point is, and others feel the same way I do. That's when I know you have not resolved your conflicts the right way. And you have infected the body. Because now you have brought others into, see the spirals going on. There's the lawsuit going on. I don't mean that legally now. We are suing one another in the, in the context of gossip. We do that all the time. Somehow or another, we think that the weight of our argument is made better because others think the same way. Well, why haven't those others come forward? And you should see the faces when you look them square in the eye and say, tell me who those others are. Name names. Because you see, if that person who represents the others is not afraid of the truth, then they will not mind their names being used because it's true what they're saying. But very rarely do you hear someone say, Oh, yeah, I'll tell you who it is. Rather, they'll say something like this. Well, they didn't want me to say anything to you about this. You see what's taking place now? It's called G-O-S-S-I-P exclamation point. And that kind of thing happens again and again and again, not just in the context of church life, but on your job in your neighborhood, in your families. How many of you tomorrow will have someone come at the work office and bend your ear about some criticism they have of another employee? And you're gonna sit there and you're going to take it all in because somehow or another you think you have a right to know. Why not stop them? Say, you know what? I'm very uncomfortable hearing something bad about someone that I've determined in my heart never to receive a bad report about. I think you'll be the last one on the gossip list in the office when you take that kind of stand. In other words, if that person is unwilling to say these things to my face, then more than likely what they have to say is evil. What conflicts do you come to church with today? What promises have you made that you've not kept? Do you know that a broken promise is a conflict? When you say to somebody, I promise you I'm going to do such and such and then you don't do it. If you're an employer, if you own your own company and you make promises to people and you don't come through with those promises, you've created a conflict. How many times have you said to someone, I'll pray for you. And you've never prayed for them. You need to go back to those people and seek forgiveness. You need to go back and say to them, you know, brother, I told you I would pray for you, and now I have to confess to you that I didn't. I didn't pray for you. And now I am committing to you that from this day forward, when God brings you to my remembrance, I will make sure that I pray for you. Please forgive me for having told you that I would pray for you and fail to do so. You know what a spirit of humility laced throughout this congregation would do. You know, on that dreadful day, that first Sunday after we lost our child, I think all of us realize something here. We're not in control. We can't control certain things. God's in control. God is sovereign. God is the one alone who can be trusted. And there was a sense of humility when we all understood that great pain can touch us, that if they're not exempt, then I'm not exempt. And I think that spirit is the spirit we need every time we come in here to worship. Notice Hebrews 12:14. It says, "Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord." Or Romans 14:19, "Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace." Notice the next phrase. And to mutual edification. In other words, my humility and your humility, demonstrated in the context of true, genuine conflict resolution, becomes contagious. And you and I at that point become mutually edified. You build me up with your humility. I build you up with my humility because we're showing each other Jesus Christ. Because you see, he is our supreme example, isn't he? He gave up all his rights. You say, well, you know what, pastor? I've tried every which way I give up. I give up. I've done everything I know how to do. I just plain give up. I can't get it resolved. Well, let me ask you something. What if our Savior had the same mindset? What if He were to say to you, you know what? That sin that you commit every single day that you ask me for forgiveness for at nighttime that you commit again tomorrow and the next day and you go through this ritual this cycle of please lord forgive me no I'll never do that again here I'm doing it again please lord forgive me no I'll never do that again on and on and on for years what if the lord finally said to you you know what I give up I give up no more grace for you you're cut off I'm not going to love you that way anymore I'm done with you you're a foolish idiot I'm done with you. You're just hard-headed. You just don't get it. What if he treated you that way? And yet he tells us, he commands us that in the same way that he treated us, the same love he has shed on us, we are to walk in his steps and shed on others. We are to have that same we never ever should give up. It may never be resolved. But you should never, ever give up. Your prayer should not be, Lord, please change their mind. Show them how wrong and miserable and proud they are. Lord, please, whatever it takes, strike them down. Bring them misery in their lives so that they can see what great pain they've caused. That shouldn't be your prayer. In fact, you should be saying something like this. Lord, please be merciful. Don't give them or me what we rightfully deserve. Lord, show me how to love them a different way. Show me how to love them with a new kind of love. Show me how to love them with grace, even though they're unlovely, even though they're not lovable. Show me how you loved me when I was unlovely and when I was unlovable and let me show them that same kind of love. Imagine, just imagine if our whole church did that every single week before we come in here. Imagine what would happen if we came into this church with that kind of spirit of humility that doesn't point the finger, but raises the hands and yields. Imagine, you know, we fail each other. I'm going to fail you. And certainly you're going to fail me. That's why none of us in here are God's. Because we are sinners and we will fail each other. But our bond of unity is around a cross where my sins, all of them past, present, and future, have been obliterated by the blood of Christ. He has not held them against me. How can you? He has not held your sins against you. How can I? He has forgiven me completely and totally, forever. How can you not? He has forgiven you, if you know Christ, of all your sins for all eternity. He took the punishment for those sins. He not only removed the sin, but the guilt of the sin. How can I hold it against you? How can I treat my wife with that kind of disrespect? Of the cross. I mock the cross of Jesus Christ every time I hold my wife's faults or she holds my faults against each other because Christ paid a supreme price to forgive those faults. Oh, we'll sin, we'll fall short, but we need to keep current. Let me give you a second principle. And I'm always uncomfortable doing this, but not this morning. The second principle is this. Prepare an offering. All right, there it is. I knew the pastor was going to bring up money. Especially those of you who are new to the church, let me tell you right now, if you think that's what I'm doing, and if you think that this pastor always does this, I'm offended. Because anybody that's been around this church long enough knows I don't preach money. You don't hear guilt-ridden sermons about how much you should be giving. You don't hear us getting up here and we don't hold bingo games and all those other things. We don't have casinos and gambling and everything else to raise money for the church. We believe, and I've preached for years, this concept. Teach people to fall in love with Christ and their giving will follow. I've got some suggestions for you. First thing you need to do is you make out a check for 10% of your income. That's what the word tithe means. God gave you 10 apples. Every week when you get paid or every month, however you get paid, God gave you 10 apples. One of those belongs exclusively to him. I say exclusively because really all 10 of them belong to him. But he's given you nine of those apples back to manage your life in what we call stewardship. The one belongs to him. So prepare an offering. Make a check out for 10% of your income. Then secondly, hold it in front of you, look at it, and ask yourself this question. Does this check represent a personal sacrifice? You can be very, very wealthy and make considerable dollars every year and you can give a large amount of money to the church. But if it does not represent A, the tithe and B, a personal sacrifice, then you haven't properly prepared for worship. Just because you give large dollars to the church The question you really need to ask does this represent a tithe of my income and does it also represent a personal sacrifice? Thirdly, ask God to help you discern the wisdom of how you have been spending what remains. Specifically, does what remain, the 90% that remains, does that represent or reflect an absolute commitment? To advance the kingdom of God. Or is it your kingdom you're advancing? Is it your own little kingdom on your little half acre. That you're advancing. Or does the 90% that's left behind. Is it managed in such a way that every single dollar is thought through. In the context of how can I manage my life in a proper way. And yet be able to give sacrificially beyond the tithe? And that's why I tell you, fourthly, in this preparation, tear up the first check and rewrite a new one if needed. Because you see, if it does not represent a tithe, and if it does not represent a sacrifice on your part, then you have not properly prepared an offering. say, well, where do we find all this? Well, you need to meditate on Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Look at such things as this. The tithe is the starting core principle of giving. Malachi 3 says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. Notice the word he uses there is what? You rob me. Now, a person who robs is a what? Thief. Not my words, his words. Will you rob me? Will you be a thief? over what I've given you. You see, I gave you those 10 apples. It's that 10th one I'm looking at to be a core principle of your giving. This is the beginning point. You take that core principle and you hand that apple over to me. You don't take a bite out of it. You don't take two bites out of it. You don't take three bites out of it. You don't hand me back the skin. That apple belongs to me, as do the other nine, but I'm I'm letting you manage those other nine in stewardship that one belongs to me. Will you rob me? How do we rob you? You ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Notice the injection of the word offerings. Our giving does not stop when we tithe. Some of us haven't even gotten there. We're still back biting out the core. Our giving goes beyond the tithe and it goes into offerings. He says, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe. Bring the what? Whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Because you see, I'm testing you. Test me in this. Not in the sense that we're going to put God on trial but in the sense of what follows. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Let me say two things about that. One, nowhere does God say dollar for dollar. Nowhere does he say in that passage, if you tithe, I'm going to give you back money. Money's easy for God. Money's easy. The second thing is just imagine. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul references the legacy of giving. He says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What a legacy! These people were not just in poverty. They were in extreme poverty. And yet their giving welled up. There was a bubbling over. Rooted in the grace of God. They knew grace. They felt grace. And their giving followed. In fact, giving should be according to our potential, and that's a privilege. That's a privilege. Look at verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 8. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Did you see that? You say, I don't know, I, don't, I can't afford it. Can't afford it. Do you have a plan? If you put a plan in place, entirely on their own, beyond their ability. Notice verse 4. This boggles my mind. Verse 4 ought to boggle your mind. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They begged us to allow us to give. I can't remember anybody ever coming into my office and begging me for them to give. Nobody's ever done that. This is a privilege, they said. We want to be involved in the privilege of kingdom building. We don't want to be left out because God has blessings to give. We can build the kingdom and I can receive the blessings that God's going to give. And they begged Paul to be in the mix. Giving must flow out of holy consecration. Verse five, they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. You see the flow here? They gave themselves first to God. Holy consecration, complete dedication to the kingdom of God and building that kingdom. And because of that, out of that flowed a commitment to what Paul calls us or the kingdom ministries, the church of Jesus Christ. I can hear the critics now. Tithing is Old Testament. Tithing is law. Nothing in the New Testament teaches the tithe absolutely wrong. Jesus, when confronted with the Pharisees, one day told them, he said, you know what? You guys tithe your anise, your cumin, your mint, your tomatoes, everything else. You actually measure the plants and you take one-tenth off and you give it to the the work of the kingdom. He says you're so meticulous in your tithing. Ten percent, right on the dot. Ten percent. That plant, if it has ten spokes on it, one has to be cut off for the Lord. You're meticulous in your tithing. Now, if it was only Old Testament at that point, you would expect Jesus to say, well, you know, that's been abrogated now. We don't do that anymore because we're in the new covenant. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, these things, the tithing, ought you to have done. But you don't leave undone the other things. The other things being justice and love and mercy. And then he goes even further. The scriptures speak of this total dedication of oneself. You give me your life, not just a tenth of your life. You give me all of your money, not just a tenth of it. It all belongs to me. I want you to manage your resources, your time, your energy, your friendships, the things that you invest in. I want them to be reflective of your commitment to build the kingdom. And then he says in that Corinthian passage, Christ is your model of sacrifice. Look at verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's your model. Not the Old Testament Malachi passage, not the New Testament 2 Corinthians passage, not even the words of tithing and the, the inclusion of tithing into the things you ought to have done, but Christ. He didn't give you 10%. He gave you everything. There was nothing more to give. They drained him of his blood for you and for me. Drained of his blood. That's our supreme model. And then there is to be equal sacrifice, not equal giving. But notice verse 11, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For the the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. You know what he's talking about there? Not equal giving. We all can't give the same amounts, but equal sacrifice. When we prepare the offering, is the sacrifice there? Then finally, I believe grace-giving extends beyond the tithe. The tithe is the core principle. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Do you notice how many times he uses the word all? So that in all things, all grace may abound. At all times, having all that you need, not want, and that you will abound in every good work. Please don't walk out of here. And feel some sort of guilt to give. That's not what this is about. What I am trying to do is have you question whether or not you have come into the context of this service properly prepared to give. Whether there's a consecration of your heart to God. Whether God has all of you. Yeah, he has all of me, but he doesn't have my pocketbook. Yeah, he has all of me, but he doesn't have my checking account. Yeah, he has all of me, but he doesn't have my business. Then he doesn't have all of you. He doesn't have all of you. My question to you is, as you have come in here today, have you resolved the conflicts, humbled yourself before God and before those with whom you have the conflict, and have you properly prepared an offering? This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth, that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.